0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I was always fascinated by Roman history. My favorite part of the Bible when I was a kid, was Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God, because the armor that was always described and the armor that was depicted for us in our flannel graphs was Roman armor. And I could easily picture myself in in the breastplate and the plumed hat with the sword and the the shield and and all of that. Uh, I just loved all things Roman, and so I was fascinated with the history of the Roman Republic and the emperors who show up occasionally, who are mentioned in passing, in the gospel accounts and in uh, scripture. And so I was always fascinated by that history, dug deep into it. And I'm not going to to bore you with too many details, but I am going to ask you a question. I'm going to test your knowledge of Roman history, okay? So here's the question. Who was the first emperor of Rome? What was the name of the first emperor of Rome? anybody know? Yes? Oh, it was not Julius Caesar, Sam, but you're close. You're close. Does anybody know it? There's a connection to Julius Caesar, but it's a different Caesar. Amara? Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the first emperor. And uh when you hear the two names together, Julius Caesar and, and Augustus Caesar, uh, you can see the connection, right? Seems kind of obvious. Julius Caesar came first, so Augustus Caesar must have been Julius Caesar's what? Son. That makes perfect sense. They have the same last name, Caesar. And and you're probably thinking to yourself, well, but Mark, wait a second. No, no, Caesar, Caesar's like Messiah. Like it's not a name, it's a title, right? a... Uh, you'd actually be wrong. It was a name before it was a title. These guys were just so good at being emperors that they started calling emperors Caesars as a result of their family name. But despite the similarity in the name, Augustus Caesar was not, in fact, the son of Julius Caesar There was a family connection, but it was a little bit remote. Uh, Augustus Caesar wasn't born Augustus Caesar. He was born Gaius Octavius. That was his name. And uh, he was kind of, we would think of like the poor relations. They weren't poor, but they were pretty obscure relations. He was a a great nephew of Julius Caesar, kind of uh, one among many family relations relations. Julius Caesar. Now, when you think about the, the Roman emperors and you list them in your mind, you might be tempted to think that each of the emperors is the son of the emperor who came before him. Occasionally it could work that way, but mostly it didn't. That's not the way that that worked, or at least it's not exactly the way that it worked. A lot of times the, the next emperor was the son of the one who came before him, but he wasn't born that way. He became the son of the emperor through adoption. And that's what happened with Gaius Octavius. He became the son of his great-uncle through the process of adoption and changed his name to Augustus Caesar and went by that name and then became emperor. So it was actually through adoption that he became the heir to all the greatness that was Julius Caesar's. And that process of adoption continued in the Roman Empire. It was a common thing throughout the, the Greco-Roman world. You would adopt a person in order to make him your heir, your successor, so that all that was yours would transfer to him. And that's the way they did it. It's a little bit different from the way that we think of adoption. But when we think of adoption and the purpose of adoption, usually we think of it this way. It's like there are children who don't have parents, and so they are adopted, and now they have parents. Right? You were an orphan, you didn't have a family, and then you were adopted, and now you have a family. And the purpose of adoption is to give people who don't have a family a family. That makes sense. But in the Roman world, that's not why they adopted people. At least it wasn't the only reason. The reason for that adoption was to make clear the line of succession. But if you asked yourself, who's going to come after the emperor? That was an easy question to answer because his son and heir would come after him. And who was that? It was the guy he had adopted. And in some cases, there was no real family relation between them. In some cases, you would have men who, who pardon the, the use of the, the terms, but were plebeians and they would be adopted by patrician families, like lower-class people adopted by upper-class people. And by virtue of the adoption, this lower-class person became upper-class. He became senatorial because he had been adopted by a senator. He was now his heir. That was the way that it works. Now, in our text, we see this idea of adoption being applied by Paul to us. He's talking about our relationship to God, and he's using this idea of adoption to help us understand the relationship that we stand in before God. Now, just to to remind you, as you think about Romans 8, you always have to keep Romans 7 in mind. Remember, in Romans 7, that's where Paul opened up and got really honest about the believer's struggle with sin. But Romans 7 is where we talked about how I do what I hate. You know, I know what the right thing to do is, but I don't do that. Instead, I do the wrong thing. I do what I don't want to do. That's the struggle. And in Romans 8, Paul has introduced the Holy Spirit and is speaking to us about the difference the Holy Spirit makes to us in the struggle against sin. And pointing out what you might think of as... as uh, Consequences for or, or conclusions that you should draw from the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in you, like if you have the Holy Spirit working in you, there are certain things you can know as a result, and it turns out adoption is one of those things so as we look at the text, this is going to be really simple the The logic is really simple, so let me just give it to you up front. And then as we work through it, you'll see how the connections are. So first, we're going to look at what it means to live by the Spirit. And uh, I'm going to say living by the Spirit doesn't mean what you often hear people say, let go and let God. Living by the Spirit means that you work and God works in you, which is a little bit different. But if you've received the Spirit, then you've been adopted. And if you've been adopted, then you will inherit. That's the logic. The Spirit is at work in you. It doesn't mean what you might think it means, but if the Spirit is in you, then you've been adopted. And if you've been adopted, then you will inherit. That's the logic that underlies the text that we're looking at. So let's just go through it carefully, uh, verse by verse. So living by the Spirit doesn't mean let go and let God. It means you work and God works in you. So here's what Paul says. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. First of all, so then, brothers, so then, Adelphoi. That's the Greek word for brothers. It, it's a little broader than our word brothers. It encompasses sisters as well, brothers and sisters. He addresses us with this familial word. It's a warm term. This is only the fourth time in the book of Romans that Paul has done this. That he's addressed his readers as brothers, and there's an assurance that comes from that. Like when he speaks to us as brothers, as a Delphoi, like he's including us in the number which he is a part of as well. Like he's not holding us apart and telling us things that are true for him but not for us. Instead, he's including us. What he's saying is true for all of us. For all of us, this is the case. But then what he says is a little tough. So, so then, Adelphoi, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I wasn't just obsessed with ancient Rome as a kid. I was always obsessed with all forms of combat. It's the reason why I'm such a great warrior today. (laughs) I got a book when I was a kid and I devoured it. It was by uh, the guy who during World War II had helped design the British commando dagger. And then he wrote a book about how to use it. I'm like, oh, I'm all in. The book is called Kill or Get Killed. <laughs> right? The stakes are high. When you're in battle, you kill or you get killed. There's no rules. There's no polite way to, to, to do battle. You, it's down and dirty. Right? You kill or you get killed. And I love that sort of thing. You know, I just pictured myself not getting killed, mostly just killing. And uh, it was lavishly illustrated, all sorts of great images of how to do it. In a weird kind of way, Paul is reflecting those kind of stakes back to us, right? That's the stark choice that he's putting before us. It is kill or get killed. When it comes to life according to the flesh or life according to the spirit, as we saw earlier in chapter 8, it is kill or get killed. There is no middle ground. There is no peace to be made Between the two, there are only two options, to live according to the flesh. And if you do that, that means death. You will die, he says, if you do this. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit, by the means of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That sounds less inspirational than let go and let God. Let go and let God sounds wonderful. Like, I have so many cares and concerns, but but I don't want to hold on. I just want to let go, and God will take care of it all. And Paul says, no, by the Spirit, you need to put to death the deeds of the body. There's a a, a warfare that you've been called to, in other words. You've been given the tools for it. You've been equipped for it, but you're still called to a fight, not to passivity, but, but to conflict. That what you must do is by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Either the flesh kills you, or by the Spirit you kill the flesh. In Colossians three five, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, which is... Epithemean, which is that, that word that we saw, again again in Romans, for corrupt desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. These are the works of the flesh. These are the ways in which we live in the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, when we indulge in evil desire, corrupted desire, when we satisfy the desires of our corrupted nature, when we covet what isn't ours, when we worship what we shouldn't worship, all of that is walking according to the flesh, and it is death. And if you live that way, you will die. What you must do instead is by the Spirit put those things to death. That's the calling. So, sanctification is what we call that. But the way that Paul describes it should suggest that sanctification is hard work. It is actually hard work. And that's something that you could be forgiven for not understanding the way that I usually talk about sanctification. Because usually, when I talk about sanctification, the thing I want to get across to you is that it is a work of the Spirit, just like justification. I want to make sure that nobody comes to grace and thinks that I am justified by faith and I remain justified and get sanctified through my works apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit sanctifies just as surely as the Holy Spirit justifies. But if you just hear that, it might sound like what I'm saying is, look, this is not one of those churches where we say, you know, you need to work hard to be pleasing to God. You need to live a holy life. You should stop sinning. No, just let go and let God. The Spirit does that. It's not you. Just let the Spirit take care of it. That's not what I'm saying because that's not what Paul says. Paul says, yeah, it is a work of the Spirit, but then he calls you to do it. And you're like, Paul, wait a second. It's one thing or the other. Like, either I do it or God does it right? And Paul says, no, it's both. It's both. You do it and God does it. You do it and God does it through you. That's the way it works. Philippians 2 is always the passage I want you to keep in mind. Whenever you think about uh, who does it, is it God or is it me? Just go back to Philippians 2 and read verses 12 and 13. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Man, I hated that verse as a kid. Made no sense to me at all. Because we were always told, um, you know, if you pray the prayer, then you're saved, and you're saved eternally, doesn't matter what happens after that, you're saved, you're in, doesn't matter. So, so... When he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, that, doesn't, that sounds anxiety-producing. So I, I never liked that verse, never understood it, because I never kept reading. But when you keep reading, you discover something. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah? So, not let go and let God. Stop doing so that God can do it for you, but God does it through you. You do it, and it is God working in you. Now, we joke sometimes that's the beauty of Reformed theology. Like, we've somehow managed to, to turn sanctification into this thing where, where God gets all the credit for the good and we get all the blame for the bad. That's the way it works. The good that you do is God working in you, but you do do it. You are working. Don't get the impression that, that, that this life is the rest that has been promised. It's not. The rest is yet to come. The, the Sabbath we will enter into, we will enter into when Christ comes again, but now we're here to fight. We're here to fight. We're here to put to death the deeds of the body by means of the Spirit. So we have the Spirit working in us, doing that work of sanctification, fighting that fight. And we are called to fight it. But the Spirit's more than a weapon. The Spirit is more than a a force to sanctify us. The Spirit is also an assurance to us. And this is where Paul gets into this idea of adoption, Right? In verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you have the Spirit in you, then you are God's children. That's assurance by definition. If the Spirit is at work in you, if you have been quickened, made alive by the Spirit, then you are the children of God. And that means something. Like it affects the way that you live because he says you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, which is what living according to the flesh is. To return to the slavery that you've been freed from, it's ridiculous. That wasn't the reason why you were given this gift. But you've been made free. Don't return to the bondage, don't return to the fear. But he doesn't say, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you've received the spirit of freedom. He says something more than that. He says, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is strong assurance. If you have the spirit, then you are the sons of God. The Greek there, huios, the sons of God. So he's not saying you have become free. He's saying you've become more than free. You've become sons. Remember the prodigal son who, at his lowest moment when he hit rock bottom, aspired to return to his home and become one of his father's servants? had been a son, but now he's been humbled and he wants to go back. He would be content just to be a servant in his father's household. But his father embraces him and refuses to allow him to degrade himself in that way and insists on rewarding him and receiving him as a son. And that's how God is speaking to us. What's no longer true of us, we no longer have the spirit of fear. We're no longer subject to the fear that we once were. We are no longer slaves to sin because we are now sons. We are the children of God with a right to cry out to him as father. Abba father. Abba father is interesting. So Abba is the Aramaic word for father. So if you were reading this in the original, it says Abba and it's it's in Greek letters, but it's just a transliteration of the Aramaic word, Abba, and then it follows with "hapata," which is father in Greek. So literally, the way it reads is father, 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 father. Now, when you look at that, you might think what's going on is, is something like you get in uh, gospel accounts of the crucifixion where Jesus is speaking in Aramaic, and so you get the Aramaic quote, and then it is translated for you. But actually, the way that this is written suggests something else. What uh, theologians uh, interpret or intuit when they, they see this phrasing, Abba, Father, is not that Paul is, is defining the word Abba for us, but what he's doing is he's citing a way that the earliest Christians have of referring to the Father. Because right? remember, this is uh, uh, gospels and epistles written in Greek, but, but a faith that originally came in a sort of uh, polyglot culture where they were speaking Aramaic, they were writing Greek, they were kind of going back and forth. So these early Christians in crying out to God apparently used both words, like Abba, Father, like, for emphasis almost. As a, a term of address. If a is a warm term of address to us, Abba Father it is a cry that we cry out to God equally warm. Like speaking to him as our Father. It's as if what Paul is saying is, You guys know this. Like in your worship, when you call out to him, you call him Abba Father. What gives you the right to speak to him this way? The Spirit in you. The Spirit in you gives you the right. Because the spirit that you've been given is the spirit of adoption. Adoption. And I said before the Greek word for sons is huios. Well, the word that's translated as adoption here is huiathesis. If we weren't concerned about, about, you know, the flow of language, we could call it sonification. Adoption, sonification, to be made a son in the way that we referred to earlier, the way that someone uh, distantly related or completely unrelated to you could be made your son and heir to this process of huiathesis. That's the spirit that we've been given. We have been adopted as children of God. Now, when we talk about being children of God in everyday language, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about that. They'll say something like, well, we're all children of God. We're all children of God by virtue of being human, right? Everybody's a child of God. Um, I'm not big into policing language. So if you talk that way, I'm not necessarily going to say, hey, stop saying that. I think there's a sense in which you're acknowledging something good there, right? All human beings are made in the image of God. All human beings stand in relation to God and, and, and have value because of that image. And if you're trying to capture the sense of that when you say things like that, fine, But I just want you to keep in mind that when Paul speaks about being children of God, being sons of God, he has something different in mind. That we were aliens and strangers, and now we've been made family. We once had no right, and now we have every right. Our status has been changed in relation to God. We have become sons. We have become daughters. We have become children of God through adoption. The Westminster Confession has a chapter on adoption. It is the only one of the, the Reformation confessions of faith that has a chapter on adoption. Others mention the concept but the Westminster devotes an entire section to it. So let me read that to you and also point out where it comes in the confession. If you're flipping through the Westminster Confession of Faith, you'll get to justification in chapter 11, And justification is naturally followed by sanctification. Only in the Westminster, it's not. Justification is chapter 11. Sanctification is chapter 13. Chapter 12 is adoption. Adoption. And here's what it says. All those that are justified... God vouchsafeth in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's what it means to be his children by adoption, to receive everything, everything, the whole of the inheritance that is promised to Christ, becomes ours through adoption. This is strong assurance for us in our battle against sin as we question the state of our lives. We question our future in Christ. If the Spirit is in you, working in you, you are children of God. Strong assurance. If the Spirit is at work in you, you will never be cast off by him. You will inherit the promises, as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's the point that Paul is making here. The reason why he's using this idea of adoption is, is that adoption means inheritance. If you are adopted, then you are the heir. That's the connection that's necessary. If you've been adopted, then you will inherit Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Those two things go together. We are the children of God, and if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Thinking of the Westminster Confession, in Sunday school as we worked through uh, the doctrine of Scripture in the Westminster Confession, we saw in chapter 1, section 5, that our assurance of the truth of Scripture, no matter how much evidence we have, no matter how much we look at the external manuscript evidence or all of the internal consistencies and fulfilled prophecy and all of that stuff, that, that notwithstanding all of that, our real assurance comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirits. Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And here Paul is using that same kind of language. What is the spirit in you doing? The spirit in you is bearing witness with your spirit, is testifying within you that you are children of God. That's what the Spirit is doing, not only standing as a sign and seal, but also as a witness, telling you, this is true, telling you that you are God's children, and if children, then heirs. We've seen already in the Greco-Roman practice of adoption, the purpose of adoption is inheritance. The reason that that Paul emphasizes our adoption is so that we can be assured. That we have inherited the promises. Now, when he says this, he's not just thinking of Hellenistic culture; he's also thinking of Old Testament culture, because throughout the Old Testament, God and His covenant relations with His people has been promising an inheritance, and in the course of that revelation, has come to reveal that the inheritance that He's promising is more than it seemed to be. It wasn't just a land. It wasn't just a physical kingdom. It was more than that. It was spiritual and it was yet to come. And now that promise, which is still to be inherited, Paul says, belongs to us. That we are heirs of that promise. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And even our suffering shouldn't lead us to doubt this. In Romans 7, you see the the struggle against sin, which often leads us to doubt. But another thing that often leads us to doubt is suffering. And so he addresses suffering here, and we'll address it again uh, in the text we look at next time. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our suffering shouldn't lead us to doubt What the Spirit testifies, even our suffering confirms the Spirit's testimony. If we're being made in the image of Christ, Christ told us we should expect to suffer as he suffered. That's part of it. Our suffering becomes a confirmation so that in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul can write, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. It's funny, we've been talking about adoption, and uh, last week, I wasn't expecting this, but I was actually asked to preach at the church that hosted the conference that I was speaking at. And, and I say I was asked to preach, but as I explained in Sunday school, I wasn't actually asked. Uh, other people were asked. No one ever asked me. It was just announced that I was doing it. And so once they publicly announce you're doing it, You're doing it. And so I preached at this church, interesting experience. And afterwards, chit chatting with people, uh, the pastor's wife came up to me and was talking, and she asked me this question uh, uh, So, how many children do you have? And uh, the answer is none. But the funny thing is, people never quite know what to do with that. So, what she asked me afterwards, uh, when I answered that I had no children, she said, Well, how long have you been married? thinking maybe it was recent you know last week or something, and uh, so I was like well no it 's actually been uh, well twenty four years right thousand nine hundred and ninety six it's it 's been a while and uh, and I, I I kind of expect that we won 't have any just just going on on things up to now, and it 's always awkward, and I never know like like how you know much detail to get in in situations like that you know what i want to say is stuff like well we had a cat but he died because i know like if you're a parent and someone says that to you like you you want to say look it's different right a child and a cat are different and i'm like i know cuz cats are so cute and and you know And and I get that, I get that, but but occasionally when you talk to me, you will pick up on the fact that that I have no children uh, because there's a a streak of what I would call immaturity that remains in me, that that parenthood usually deals with. Like I I saw this in in a crazy way with my friends who were wild and crazy when we first met and then they went on to, to, to have children and they changed in interesting ways, surprising ways. My brother, uh, who was the worst child conceivable for a parent to have, like ultimate rebel, he had a sense of justice where where whatever he thought was right was right, and he would defy anybody uh, who said otherwise, and and he got away with everything, and and then he had children and became a stern disciplinarian. And I thought, that is so hypocritical and wrong, and he got away with it. It seems so unjust, but but parenthood does change you in weird ways, and, and when you think about why, it, it kind of makes sense. It's not just you're now responsible for other people, and if you make the wrong move, bad things can happen. Like, you start thinking differently about your own choices. Uh, formerly irresponsible people who just lived for pleasure and just did whatever they wanted to do, because obviously you just choose whatever you want, and in the moment suddenly started thinking, well, what message will this send to my children? I remember having conversations like that with people whose children were, like, less than a year old. I'm like, they won't know. They'll never find out. But, but, but still, you're thinking in this weird way, like, like, what is the message this will send? You're looking out into the future, and you're kind of, like, making choices based on, on, on what will happen then. Like, how will what I do now affect the future? Like, like what kind of a world will they live in? That sort of thing. A lot of people worry about the, the world that we're passing down to our children. Right? Anxiety about that. And you're like, you won't be there. What does it matter? But, but it does somehow. And it changes the way that you think. Because once you start thinking about the future that way, uh, suddenly there's responsibility that you take on. Like your actions change. Stuff you would have done before you won't do anymore. Things you never would have done you now do because you're thinking of something other than yourself. Your actions change when you start thinking in terms of outcome, when you start thinking in terms of the end. I think that's why Paul is speaking to us here about the end. When he says that we've been adopted as children of God and have children than heirs, he's pointing us to the end. He's pointing us to the kind of thing that changes the way you live. Because if the end is inheriting the promise, if the end is, is life eternal, if the end is justice, it might change how you live now. There are sacrifices I would be unwilling to make if I believed this life is all there is. And that I would be proud to make if I believed that one day I would stand with, with the heavenly host in the presence of God thinking about the end changes what you would do now and how you would live. If we are children of God, we can't live according to the flesh. If we are children of God, and if children then heirs, how can we be subject to the spirit of fear? What is there to be afraid of? Nothing. So once again, Paul, in speaking to us of the Spirit at work in us, even though that work isn't complete, even though we haven't been made perfect in this life by the Spirit, pointing to the fact of the Spirit working in us, he's giving us strong assurance of how our story will end. If we are children and heirs, then how we live now will change. What we will endure now will change. Because we don't live for ourselves, we live for him. We don't live out of fear. We live by hope. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.